And so he had a lot of promise in his life. In fact, when he was 14, he got sent to Paris to be able to study university there. And so uh, obviously he was doing pretty well for himself. And in Paris, he came across the writings of Martin Luther. And he started considering what he believed. He grew up in the Catholic Church in Scotland there. And the Catholic Church was really uh, had a stranglehold on the religion in, in Scotland. And so he went to Paris and was still part of the Catholic Church. But Martin Luther taught that it's not by works that someone saved, but by faith. And so through Christ alone. And as he began to read Martin Luther, he began to then read the Bible. And he started coming to understanding that the Bible is the authority from which he should base his beliefs and not the church. And then he came back to England, to back to Scotland and started working, started, I'm sorry, being a professor at the University of St. Andrews. And again, he studied the Bible more, and eventually he came to faith in Christ at the age of 20 years old. But he wasn't quite ready to step out and start preaching the gospel. He was 20 years old. He didn't know anyone else that was a convert to Christ. So he went to Germany, studied there, basically fled for his life there because he was afraid. And then at the age of 23, he realized he probably needs to come back. And if he's going to preach the gospel, preach to his people. So he came back to Scotland, stood in the street corners, went to churches, and he preached the gospel, and people started to get saved. They started coming out of the Catholic belief and coming to faith in Christ. And the Archbishop Beaton had him come before him on trial and told him not to preach anymore this gospel and sent him out and basically said, you know, you go out and don't do this anymore. And so for the next month, he went ahead and kept preaching the gospel. He had him come back in and to put him on trial on that very same day out in front of this church. You actually can see if you go over to Scotland, you can see a monument there to him. It's on the, it's in the stone pavements and they set up some stakes and they burned him alive for six hours. He was burning and didn't expire until six hours later. And his death was a turning point in Scotland. He was the first martyr of the Scottish Reformation for the Protestant movement and in Scotland there. And God really did turn that country upside down through his witness. But as he was going to be burned alive and recognize that his body was going to be mutilated, he was going to suffer a lot. He prayed out to God, cried out to God. And what was his hope. And as he testified and as other people heard him testify, his hope was that he would be resurrected. He'd be resurrected. This was not the only life there was. There was a life to come. And that really is a topic that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about Christ's authority over resurrection from Mark chapter 12. We're in our third week of our study of the authority of Jesus. And just to to recap, in, in, in chapter 11, Jesus marched into Jerusalem, into the temple as the Messiah King. He presented himself as the one who was the authority in the temple there. And of course, the Sanhedrin, those 70 men who ran the Jewish temple in the Jerusalem, who were the political figures there, they were upset about that. And so they plotted to try to kill him. They convened together and decided that they were going to go out and try to trick him. So last week, we saw that first group of the Sanhedrin, where the Pharisees, 
And they tried to trick him with a question about paying taxes. And Jesus wisely answered and shocked them all. And that angle didn't work. So then the sin. Uh, The Sadducees came to him, and that's the passage we're going to look at this morning. Would you look down in Mark chapter 12 and look at verse 18 with me? Mark 12, 18. The Bible says, And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So then they tell a story. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, left no offspring. The third, likewise, this is not going well. (laughs) If I was these brothers, I'd be concerned about this. But anyways, 22, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. Now, in the resurrection, when they arise, Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And so in our passage today, we're going to look at three realities of Jesus' authority over resurrection. So our first point is that Jesus is the authority over resurrection. And the Sadducees ask a question about resurrection. You can see that there in verse 18. The Bible says the Sadducees came to him and they say that there is no resurrection. So here the Sadducees approach Jesus with a question about something that they didn't even believe was true. Which shows you what? They were trying to deceive. It shows their objective was to discredit Jesus and with the goal of undermining his authority. And who were these Sadducees here. Well, we looked at Pharisees last week. The history of Sadducees is very interesting. Sadducees were the ruling class, as I said earlier, in Jerusalem. Really, there were three groups of people in Israel, three parties, if you want to say it that way. You had the Essenes, Essenes, and they were ascetic separatists. In other words, they lived in the desert, and we have them to thank for the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so if you go to Israel, you'll learn a lot about them. And they were separatists, but they were completely separate from everyone in society. Then you had the zealots or freedom fighters, terrorists, depends on what side you were on. And they were uh, for the freedom of Israel. And so they fought the political leaders and the Roman soldiers. And also they were the Pharisees. We talked about them last week. They were religious separatists. They were also scribes were a part of that. And they were among the people. They lived among the people. And they followed the rules of the Mishnah and other things. And then you have the Sadducees, and this included the high priest. He was a Sadducee, and they actually oversaw the entire temple priesthood. Uh, they were the ones who set up the, the policies and rules for the, for, the, um, for the temple. They were the ones that gained when people brought money in. They were the ones that got the money and the power. And theologically, they were very interesting because they accepted only the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And 
they followed the rules of uh, Leviticus very closely, and they wanted to make sure that they followed the rituals and instructions according to what the, the Pentateuch said. And so they followed that. But as they looked at the Pentateuch, they didn't believe that there was anything supernatural taking place in the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in a spirit world. Or they also didn't believe in an afterlife, which seems kind of crazy when you read the book of um, Genesis and Exodus and see what God did there. But that's what their belief was. was. So they were actually in opposition to the Pharisees. The Pharisees did believe in a spirit world. They believed in angels and demons. They believed in an afterlife. So they, they would butt heads a lot. They would argue a lot. They're always in contention with each other in regard to these issues. In fact, it's interesting that Paul uses this as a way to kind of divide them when he was on trial. The Bible says that Paul perceived that part of the people he was standing in front of were Sadducees and the other part was Pharisees. So the Bible says he cried out to the council and he said, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, which made the Sadducees probably mad. And he said, a son of Pharisees, and it's with respect of the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And then you can see, as I put on the screen up here in verse seven, when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. In other words, they began to fight with each other about this topic so that you can see how heated this debate was. And then in verse eight, the Bible says, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so the Sadducees really had a temporal view of life. They believe there's nothing after death, which probably contributed to their hard heartedness towards people who are poor. I mean, in other words, if this is all there is in this life, that's what they believe, then everything you do in life is to enjoy the life you have now. And so they didn't believe in rewards or punishment after death. And so you can, you can think about how they um, put policies in place in the temple to enrich themselves and to be very wealthy and to be very powerful. And honestly, if, if God doesn't care because God doesn't have an afterlife for me, then what does it really matter? It's kind of their thinking. And so with this background, understanding this, the Sadducees, let's look at verse 19 and, and understand the question that they ask Jesus. In verse 19, the Bible says that they talk to Jesus and they say, teacher, Moses wrote. Now let's stop right there. They quote Moses. And of course, Moses, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses were the, the documents they believe were inspired by God or they're from God, the ones that they would look at. And they basically quote an instruction given from Deuteronomy 25, five through six. And the instruction is this, and that is if a brother is married and the brother dies, then the younger brother who's single will marry the, the dead brother's wife. Okay. And the idea behind this was to carry on the family name, to keep the property and the inheritance in the family line. So this was a Jewish law that God put in place for the stability of the nation of Israel. But the Sadducees took this and put it together with resurrection and tried to show how ridiculous the Pharisees idea and what they thought also was Jesus idea of resurrection. So with that understanding, look at verse 19 where they say, teacher, Moses wrote, so here's an authoritative source, Jesus, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take a widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Then they tell this parable about all these brothers that die and the wife, um, the wife marries, marries, marries. And then the question is, 
At the very end, in verse number 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, this parable actually was a huge problem for the Pharisees because the Pharisees believed that after the afterlife was just a continuation of this life. So if you're married right now, the next life, that's the person you're going to be married to. So if you're wealthy in this life, the next life, you're going to have a lot of resources. If you have power in this life, the next life, you're so they just figured whatever your life ended with, like on this earth, that's what it was like in heaven. So it kind of makes sense when you think about some people in the New Testament that were, you know, lame and crippled, and they kind of looked at them and they thought, well, that's what their life is going to be like in the next life. So they didn't, they consider them not to be blessed by God. So this was the idea the Pharisees had. So the Sadducees kind of show the ridiculousness of this by saying, ah, what happens if you're married multiple times? Like whose, whose wife will that brother, or who, which, which, which wife, which brother gets the wife? Just put it that way. Which brother gets the wife? It's just even confusing me. So this is a problem for them. And, and you can imagine the Sadducees gathering together. Of course, they evidently thought that Jesus held the same view. You can imagine them gathering together and kind of plotting and saying, okay, what is it that we can get Jesus with? Let's, let's pull out the old De- Deuteronomy 25 passage, right? And get him on, get him on the marriage passage there and, and the resurrection. He's not going to be able to get that. And so they tried to fool Jesus here. Of course, Jesus can't be fooled especially about the afterlife, because he's everlasting. And he's the one who decides who goes to heaven and how. He has authority over all. So when we consider the truth of the reality of the resurrection, it's first, it's important for us to recognize that Jesus actually is the authority over the resurrection. Look in verse 24, how Jesus responds. He said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong. And just in case that wasn't clear enough, look at the end of verse 27. You are quite wrong. So Jesus didn't hold back about his opinion on their opinion of the afterlife. And the only reason a person can be this dogmatic and say something like this is because he or she is either the authority or they're speaking from authority. And so Jesus here is speaking as the authority on resurrection. He said the week previous to this, I am the resurrection and the life. And so it's interesting if you look at the word are wrong there in the, in the Greek, it's actually the same Greek word in verse 24 as in verse 27. And it's actually in a passive middle voice, which means this, you could actually say it like this. You are deceiving yourselves to be wrong. You're being led astray on your own to be wrong. In other words, this is a sad description of the blind, self-deceived hearts of these Sadducees. So you have two two groups who have two different views of the afterlife. And, And I want you to recognize that both were pretty confident that they were right. So much so that they argued with each other a lot. They had a lot of divisions over it. The Pharisees, they generally believe they're going to be with God. And they thought, well, if I follow these rules and I'm good enough on earth, I can kind of climb the ladder of spiritual life and then get to heaven. Then the Sadducees, they believe that doesn't matter. So just live life however you want to. And there's nothing afterwards. And so these 
These two different views, though, I think are very interesting because I think they actually represent what many people believe in this world and actually have throughout time. So I put these two major categories up here. And that is, first, the first category we have is life after death is based upon a good life now, which were the Pharisees. That's what they believed. And honestly, you could probably put a lot of religions into this category. In other words, if you believe that you're good enough for God, or you go to church, or if you pray these prayers, then, then you can be uh, in heaven with God. And so some people believe that in the Catholic Church. Some people believe that in Islam, follow the five pillars of Islam or Mormonism as they go out to knock on doors and they're trying to be good enough for God so they can be what they consider paradise. So you can see that category. And then the other category is representative of the Sadducees, and that is that either there's no life after death or, frankly, it doesn't matter, you know. So there was a survey I read this past week that surveyed Americans, and 24% of Americans actually believe there's no afterlife. Now, I don't know if you were to add to that how many don't care. It probably would go up there. But so generally, you find many Americans in this second category here. I think Buddhism probably falls in this category somewhat because, you know, you believe in reincarnation. So they're kind of in the first category. You know, if you, you can reincarnate up enough to the second category, which is nothingness. That's nirvana. That's nothingness. And then Unitarianism, which is on a lot of college campuses, basically has the same view here. And of course, the the biblical view, Jesus' view, is that if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. If you do not, you face eternal death. My point is, is that what you can see here is two people, two different groups, I mean, that have pretty confident views in what they believed about the afterlife. I read a story a couple weeks ago about uh, a pastor who is... uh, was a pastor in Detroit, Michigan. This is back in 1876. So we're pulling out some old, old history here. And Arthur T. Pearson was a pastor in Michigan. And one time he was preaching and after the church service, as happens sometimes, uh, a person came over to him and said, hey, I want to talk to you, Pastor Pearson, about, about your message. And so he sat down with this man in the, in the auditorium there. And they began to talk. And this man said, you know, I'm, I'm a law student and began to talk about how smart he was. And he said, he said um, you know, I'm, I'm an agnostic. I don't believe that uh, you can really know if, if God exists. And so he said, well, do you believe the Bible is the word of God, sir? And, and the man said, no, I don't, I don't believe that. And he says, do you believe and believe it's possible there is a God? And he goes, well, I don't believe you really can even know. And he says, well, why are you here? Why do you want to talk to me? He said, well, when you preach, there was this, there was this confidence and certainty and, and really peace that came through about, about the afterlife and about what was going to happen to you. And so I just wondered where that comes from. Like, how do you have that confidence? And so Pastor Pearson came back and he says, well, I am confident. I am at peace. And my certainty is found in the word of God. The law student replies, well, I don't believe the word of God. I, I believe it's just a bunch of old stories. He goes, my mom believed that. And she tried to teach me those stories. And they're just a bunch of old fables. And I don't really care for them. And so A.T. Pearson opened up his Bible to John chapter 5 and verse 39, he says, as he put his finger on the passage, it says, it says, search the scriptures here. For in them you have eternal life. And so he said, I want you to search the scriptures this week and call out to God and look for God in the scriptures. And so he instructed him, get on your knees before God with the Bible open and read and cry out to God and search for the Lord in the scriptures. And so, you know, this man, young man went home and he actually did that got next to his bed, laid his Bible out, or the one his mom had given him after he found it, and he began to cry out to the Lord. And after a couple of days, he began to understand more what the scripture was talking about. 
And within two weeks, this man was gloriously saved. And he came back and he told Pastor Pearson about what had happened and how God had gloriously saved him. And this man had to consider, am I wrong about what I believe? And what does the word of God say about that? Jesus is basically saying that to these guys. He's saying, you, maybe more directly, you are wrong. You are wrong about what you believe. And so Jesus takes them to the authority, which is himself, but also the authority of God's word. Look at verse 24. The Bible says, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The Sadducees had the the truth in front of them. I mean, even in those five books of Moses right there, it proclaimed the truth about God. But as they looked through those those five books, they just saw rules and instructions and how to set up Israel and how to have a government. And all they saw was the material things of this world. Now, I thought about it. I thought, how do you read Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Genesis and not see God's sovereign hand? How do you not see the spirit world taking place behind the scenes of life and God moving the world in the direction that he has? How do you, how are you blind to all that? I think partly because all they cared about was themselves and the here and now. And they were blind to the spiritual realities and to the power of God. And I think it's good for us, these kind of passages, to step back and ask ourselves, is it possible we're wrong? I think all of us, it's a legitimate question to ask. Is it possible we're wrong? How do you know you're right about the afterlife? What does Jesus answer? What should we do? Go to the scriptures. And what do you look for in the scriptures? See God and see his power and how he powerfully works. So the first reality of the resurrection is Jesus is the authority of resurrection. But also, secondly, the second reality relates to the nature of the resurrection. Look at verse 24. He says, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. So what do the scriptures say? What, what does God powerfully do? Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So Jesus spoke of the nature of a resurrection, and he taught that there is a resurrection of the dead. That's what he says in verse 25. When they rise from the dead. So first of all, this means we can be confident there is an afterlife. And secondly, we can be confident that there is a resurrection of the dead. Now, you might hear that, and you might think, like, what is that? What is the resurrection of the dead? Well, if you're to understand and get an accurate picture of the life after death, you actually need to understand what resurrection is. So important. Jesus was resurrected. He promises resurrection for us. In fact, resurrection of the dead is speaking of the reality that every person who has existed. So think about this. Every person who has existed on earth will live in a resurrected body for eternity. So every person who has ever existed on earth 
will live in a resurrected body in eternity. So Daniel chapter 12 talks about this. We could go to many passages to look at this, but just particular, this particular one is in the Old Testament. The Bible says, and many of those who sleep, in, in other words, those who are, are dead, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. They'll come to life. They'll be resurrected, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So at some point, every person will be given some type of resurrection and spend either eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. And the Bible teaches that each person, you might think, well, isn't that just for people who are, who are believers in God? Well, every person will be resurrected. Only those who are believers in God will live with a resurrected body in eternity. But those who are in hell will actually have a resurrected body but they'll experience the pain and loneliness and darkness and separation from God forever. And it'll be real pain because they'll have a real body. And those with God will live on a resurrected earth in a resurrected body in a new, eternal, never-ending reality. So it's important to note here that the Bible teaches that each person will have a resurrected body and, and not a new body. And there's a difference. There's a difference between a new body and a resurrected body. What's the difference? Well, if you had a new body, first of all, we, could, we all might look the same, right? We all might have the same color of skin, same color hair, same height, okay? We, we all might come back, who knows what, maybe all as giants, you know, maybe we come back as bears, okay? So if it's a new body, we don't really know what that might look like. It could be anything. But a resurrected body means that you come back as who you are in a glorified form. So you are who you are in your looks in a perfect glorified way. And you wonder what that looks like. You have to wait to heaven to find out that one, I guess. And personality, I think there's probably part of that is coming back as well. So presumably there's some type of glorified DNA sequence that is similar to yours now in a new spiritual resurrected reality. So you have actually a resurrected body, not not just a new body. So the idea of a resurrected body was discussed, and we read it this morning in our scripture reading. I'm not going to read through the whole passage, but just highlight a couple just to talk about how Paul discussed the resurrected body in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35. You can see it on the screen. He brings up the topic. He says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? So that's a good question, right? So what's the answer? Verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, which you're in right now. You're in an earthly body. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. So there's two types of bodies, an earthly body, then a heavenly body. Verse 42, the Bible says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. In other words, when your body dies, that perishes. But what is raised is imperishable. So he gives a picture of a seed that goes into the ground and dies. But from that seed comes a new plant, a new life. And and so he says, in the same way, our bodies will go into the ground, but God will resurrect our bodies and give us new life. So in verse 44, the Bible says, uh, it is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. In other words, we all have to live in a body. Right? And so that's what God will give us. And so verse 51, which is a glorious verse, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
Notice we're changed, not exchanged, as some systematic theologies like to say it. Our bodies are not replaced with another body, but our old body dies and it's renovated. You know, it's, that's how God will change us. He'll be like a fixer-upper, but it'll be a lot better because it'll be glorified and perfect. And in verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. And if you're, if you're suffering, if you're dying, then you say glory to God. And of course, if you're a believer, we say glory to God because we look forward to that. Now, you might wonder, what will that look like? You know, your imagination starts going, right? I think actually God wants that in some sense. Be like, what, what is that going to look like? Well, in the scriptures, they actually teach us that our body is going to be very similar to the body of the resurrected Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So he has authority over all things, and that includes resurrection. And that means he can change our bodies to be like his glorious body. So I think this is kind of cool to think about. Isn't it kind of cool to think about? Like, what is it going to be like for us in eternity? What kind of body are we going to have? And so we can generally say, what were some things that, that were, were characteristics of Jesus' body, resurrected body, and, and what does that mean for us? And so there's some things I think that we can look at. First of all, when they saw Jesus, they didn't recognize him, but that was because he supernaturally prevented it, right? But once he took the veil off of their eyes, they actually did recognize him. So he was recognizable, and they were able to, to that he looks somewhat like himself before he had died. Also, the Bible says that he had human body parts, glorified human body parts, but he had human body parts. The Bible says, he said, behold, my hands and my feet, that is, it is I myself, handle me, see me, for the spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So they were like, oh, it's a spirit. He's like, no, I'm actually real. I'm actually a real person. In fact, he actually had them touch him. And that's what they did. The Bible says, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him and they clasped his feet. So he was physical. He could be touched. And they worshiped him. And then the Bible says that, that Mary heard, oh, here's another one here, that they offered food to him and he took the food and he actually ate the food. So will food be necessary in our glorified bodies? Honestly, I don't know. But it looks like some, for some reason we might be able to eat, maybe just to enjoy it, who knows. And then last, I think it's interesting that Mary actually recognized Jesus' voice. So, and there's a lot of things we could kind of go through and imagine. I think Frankly, there's a lot of things that we can't imagine. In fact, I think that's kind of the whole point that uh, Paul makes when he says that he saw the heavenlies and there was things that he can't even explain. He can't even, they're too wonderful for him. There actually is one difference between Jesus' body and our body. Do you know what that is? That's right. Jesus is the only one that's going to bear the marks of sin because he will still have the scars in his, in his hands and his feet and his side. And so... Jesus talks about the physical body and the, how we're going to change. But also he talks about the resurrected relationship. And so this is almost to our third point. I guess I skipped ahead a little bit. But a resurrected relationship. Look at verse 25. He says, Jesus taught, they neither marry 
nor are given in marriage. So God created a physical world for us. He created a, a great design of having a man and a woman come together in marriage, being able to procreate, have children, have a family. But that's actually just for this world. So Jesus says that right here. Like that was just for this world. Actually, in the next life, there's not going to be marriage and procreation and all that kind of stuff. And you might listen to that and go, oh, I really want to be married still. I like my wife or my husband. Some of you are like, yes, no, no. <laughs> but, you know, you're like, oh. And I think actually maybe that's kind of where it came from for the Pharisees. It's kind of like, man, it'd be great if that could just continue on, whatever it is. You know, if life's really good now, maybe hopefully that can continue on. But that's actually not what Jesus taught. That's what the Bible, not what the Bible teaches. And I think we have to look at it like this. And that is God created an amazing world for us and, and wonderful relationships. So think about what he has in store for us in the next life. I mean, if this world is so wonderful, what do you think the next, the next resurrected world is going to be like? And if our relationships can be so sweet in this world, what do you think perfect resurrected relationships can look like? And so I think we have to trust that God actually has a better existence for his children in the heavenly realms in the future. And I think as we try to imagine it, we have to, again, step back and recognize that that really in, in this life, we're never going to completely grasp it. So those people that say, oh, I, I died, I went to heaven, and I can tell you, just throw all that in the trash, okay? In fact, it's interesting. I, I read this um, commentary commentator that said this. He said, to imagine the next life of glory that God has prepared is like expecting a baby in the womb to imagine a magnificent sunset or the wonder of the night sky. An infant in utero just simply can't imagine that. The best we can do is compare. So I think that's kind of what Jesus does here. He says, he says in verse 25, he says, we are like the angels in heaven. Now observe, he didn't say you are an angel or you turn into an angel. He says you are like angels. You know, sometimes when children are at our table, we say, can you stop acting like pigs? Yeah, we're not actually thinking they are turning into pigs. And, and it's an important point because some people think, oh, you know, Jesus said we're going to be angels someday. He actually didn't say that. He said You'll, it's like angels. And he's talking specifically here about the relationships that we'll have with each other. So like, like angels don't marry and don't procreate. In the same way, we will uh, be like angels. We will have relationships that are single, I guess you could say it that way. Or we're going to have a different kind of relationship in heaven. So within the context here, he's speaking of the relationships we have. Like angels, we won't marry and procreate. Now, the third point, the last point, is that Jesus offers the gift of a resurrected life. Jesus' authority over resurrection means he has the power to offer the gift of resurrection to life in God's presence. After Jesus explained the nature of resurrection, he, he gave the hope that applies to each believer. And what is the hope? I mean, how can we be like, I'm, I'm 100% confident that I will be with the Lord in a resurrected body, in a resurrected world, with a resurrected relationship. Well, notice what Jesus says in verse 26. Again, he cites the scripture. And if there's one thing I can pound into my head, into all of our heads, is that is this. Always go back to the authority, which is God's word. So it says in verse 26, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read... In the book of Moses. So they cite the book of Moses. You know, that's their authoritative source. And Jesus says, okay, you want to go there? Let me cite the book of Moses and teach you what the Bible actually says. And he says, in the passage about the bush, 
how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And Jesus here quoted from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. And of course, this is the count. If, if you have been to Sunday school, you've learned this story. This is the account where Moses was running from Pharaoh for 40 years. He found himself at Mount Sinai. There was a bush in front of him. It was ablaze, but actually was not consumed. And someone was standing right in the middle. And who was in the middle of that bush? Well, Exodus 3, 2 says, It was the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was not burned, yet it was not, was burning, yet it was not consumed. So imagine that there's someone, an angel standing in the midst of that bush. And who was that angel? According to Genesis, or sorry, Exodus chapter three, his name is eventually told to us. His name is Yahweh. And so you think about that. Yahweh is God. God was standing in the midst of that bush. In fact, we see that actually in our text here. Look down in verse 26, where Jesus says in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him. So God was the one that was speaking to him. This angel of the Lord is God himself appeared. Now you think of it, backtrack a little bit and think, you know, is it possible that God can appear to people, right? Isn't God... Doesn't he dwell in an unapproachable light? Well, in the Old Testament, God appeared in the form here of a human. And who is the, who's the person of the Trinity that does that? That's Jesus. So in the Old Testament, he appeared as a human. In the New Testament, what happens? He becomes human. So he retains 100% of his deity, but also he becomes 100% God or man. 100% God, 100% man. So just think about how incredible it is that Jesus is speaking to these men about God speaking from the bush and who was that person? It was himself. And so God, or Jesus and God, verse 26 says, God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. So God made promises to all three of these men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by Moses' time, they were all dead. And then Moses, uh, God made promises to Moses as well. Jesus' point here was this. The fact that God spoke to Moses as if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were alive means what? It means they were still alive. So they believed Abraham and Isaac and Jacob believed God was powerful enough to keep his promises forever. And if you read about Abraham, you recognize his promises were eternal promises. And they believed that they would experience those promises as well beyond the grave, which means what? They believed in resurrection. And so Jesus here points out that resurrection actually is in the Pentateuch. I like how John MacArthur explained this verse. He said this, Jesus is talking about personal intimate relationship which with each one of them abraham isaac and jacob the genitive here of the god of can be seen in two ways it could mean the god to whom abraham belongs or it could mean the god who belongs to abraham and he said this he says i like to see it both ways 
I am the God to whom Abraham belongs and who belongs to Abraham. In other words, I am the God who continues to have an intimate relationship of life and worship with these men who are now dead, which means what? They are still alive. So the hope of resurrection is not just a hope for a new body. It's not just a hope for a a new world to live in. It's actually a hope for the continued close relationship with God. You could say it this way. It's a hope for a, a resurrected relationship with God. So Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, they believe that this earthly relationship established by God meant that they could experience a continued heavenly relationship with God in his presence. And I think, I think this right here is really what we should hold on to when we think about resurrection. Sometimes we sing songs about you know, heaven and eternity, and that's great to do all that. And sometimes we can think about the gold and the, and the mansions and those kind of things. But actually, resurrection is for the purpose of relationship with the Lord. He's resurrected our souls to life. Some days he'll re- someday he'll resurrect our bodies to life. And the purpose of that, both of those resurrections are for relationship with him. So eternity will be about relationship with God. That's why this life now is about relationship with him. I think that's what Paul meant when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because I'm living in relationship and in fellowship with Christ now. And I get to live with him in relationship and fellowship after death with Christ. So therefore, it's actually gain. So when we think about all this, how should we conclude? I mean, what's the... What's the application to all this, right? Well, I think it's interesting that when Paul ends his teaching on resurrection, he kind of goes through all these different ideas on resurrection, and then he kind of stops with this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And he taught that we will be resurrected in God's presence. And, it, and from this verse, it's like he's teaching this. He says, like, you're weary. You might feel like giving up on life. I think the application of of resurrection means that we can think about all the difficulties and struggles we're going through. But he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In other words, resurrection should motivate us to keep going. You know, if you have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning, or maybe you feel like quitting in some area of your life, or maybe you think, I just can't serve the Lord right now. Like the call of resurrection is, hey, soon it's all going to change. So keep going now. Keep laboring now. Be steadfast. Be unmovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And soon, resurrection is going to take place. So keep on moving. So if you're suffering, and I know many people in here have different things they're going through and different struggles you're facing physically, relationally, in other ways. Remember, God has something better for you in store in the future. So keep following the Lord. Look forward to that. And all of us, unless the Lord comes back before we die, all of us will be someday at death's door. And what should we think about when we're on death's door? On the other side is resurrection. And when I started, I talked about 
Patrick Hamilton. He was burned at the stake for his faith in Christ. I'm just imagining that is actually very difficult to, to imagine, to think about. But his death was meant to scare the masses away from the word of God, from reading the word of God, from hearing the preaching of the word of God. But what's interesting is actually did the exact opposite. In fact, one of the um, leaders of the Catholic Church said this, the reek of Mr. Patrick Hamilton has infected as many as it blew upon. In other words, as people heard about his sacrifice for Christ, they started asking the question, what? for what did he die? What did he believe? How was he able to face that? And many heard of his faith in Christ and his hope and resurrection. And that encouraged other people to trust in Christ and recognize that there's something more important in this life right here. There's a life beyond the grave. And also Christian leaders to be courageous and go out and preach the gospel of Christ. So my prayer for us as a church is may the idea and the truth of resurrection encourage us to keep moving forward for the Lord. And if you're in here without Christ, let me invite you to think about Christ's words. He said twice, you are wrong. And is it possible that you might be wrong? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Do you believe this about resurrection? And if not, I invite you to come to Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we can think about the hardships of this world. We think about friends and family who are suffering. Some who have and gone on to glory. We can think about those around the world who are suffering in the name of Christ. Our brothers and sisters in Christ who are some are in concentration camps in China. Some are locked away in Iran and have no hope to escape in this earthly life. So much suffering in our world. And so this hope, this promise of a resurrected life means so much to us and is so important for us. May we cling to the hope to come. May we live this light, this life in light of eternity and the joy of future resurrection. And God, I pray for us as a, as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, may we see the purpose is actually for the resurrected relationship that you have given to us. You have made us alive in Christ. And so we are, we are saying thank you for that. We praise you for that. We seek to pursue you because you have pursued us. In relationship. And so I pray for us as a church. May we be fellowshipping with you. May we go to your word. May we cry out to you. May we long for you. I think, Lord, there's probably people who are listening to my voice who are struggling with the hope of resurrection. Maybe they are struggling with assurance of it. Maybe they don't even know you. 
So God, I pray today that they will recognize that they are wrong and they will look to Christ, the truth, the way, the resurrected life. We don't want to sit in our hands, Lord, until we die. We don't want to gather money in the coffers like the Sadducees did. We don't want to boast in self-righteousness like the Pharisees did. God, we want our boast to be in you. We want our treasures to be in heaven. So God, give us your grace to live that way this week. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Savior. Amen. Amen.